So on the Sunday after Pentecost, the church has historically celebrated Holy Trinity Sunday. Uh, The reason for that is the the church year is basically broken into two halves. They're often called the festival half of the church year and the non-festival half of the church year. And at Pentecost, we end the festival half of the church year. The festival half of the church year has things like Christmas and Easter in it. So you get these high, unique festival services. Pentecost ends that, and then we go into a long season of the church year that doesn't have any particular festivals in it that are high festivals for the church. So Holy Trinity Sunday is celebrated at the end of the festival half of the church year because during that festival half of the church year, we have seen the Trinity on display. Obviously, we focused a lot on Jesus, the Son, who is God come in the flesh for us. But then on Pentecost, we also see the Holy Spirit particularly on display and God the Father working over all of it. And so as we have looked at these three individuals of the Trinity in their individual capacities in our life, on this Sunday, we celebrate who they are. It's also good for us as the Christian church to review this regularly. Um, So making it a practice of studying the Trinity at least once every year is just good for Christians. Uh, You heard it from the Athanasian Creed. If you don't believe that the Trinity is who God is, then you cannot be saved necessarily. Uh, Jesus says this, if you don't honor the Son, you do not honor the Father who sent him. You need to understand that God is Trinity in order to be saved. And so reviewing this and actually studying like who God is, is just an important thing for us to do. So to kind of springboard us into a study of the Trinity today, I just want to read two verses that we've actually already studied in the gospel of Mark. And so we're going to focus a little bit less on these verses, but these verses sort of get us started down the path of understanding who the Trinity is and why it matters for our life. So those verses are Mark chapter one, verses 10 and 11. Mark writes for us, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is the gospel of the Lord. So what I want to do today is I want to take on three kind of ideas about the Trinity. I want to talk about the presuppositions that we have about the Trinity. I want to look at the scriptural evidence for the Trinity. And then I want to talk about the practicality of the Trinity. And the way this is going to break up is basically those first two parts. We're going to get really technical. Um, We're going to make sure that we get all the ins and outs, all the pieces of what the Bible teaches us about the Trinity. And the second half is going to be just applying those things to our life and seeing why it is necessary to have a Trinity in order for um, us to obviously be saved, but also to understand life and the way that it works. So you can think of it like the first half is going to be like classroom, second half a little bit more like sermon. Um, I'm excited to share this with you because it's a beautiful teaching that is absolutely necessary for our salvation. So first, um, presuppositions. Uh, We have to start by saying the the word trinity or triune doesn't show up in the Bible. Uh, It's a word that the church has made up to kind of, I don't know, coalesce, and maybe codify the idea of who God is in one word. And you should be really thankful for that because otherwise you'd have to recite the entire Athanasian Creed every time you wanted to explain who God was. Um, So even though the word Trinity doesn't appear on the pages of the Bible, we can say that it is just an explanation of a bigger idea of who God is. Um, Sometimes people get a little bit critical of Christians. They say, you believe in this Trinity, but Trinity is never in the Bible. They're they're right to some extent. It's not on the pages, but the idea is definitely there. The word Trinity is just the combination of the words tri, like tricycle, and unity, right? So you have tri, three, tricycle, and unity, one. So three in one, or triune is another way you can see this. Tri is the 
again, the three idea. Un is the, the Latin word unus, which means one. And that is essentially who God is. He is three persons, three individuals distinct from each other, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, he is one God. Now, if you're a thinking person, you're probably seeing the logical dissonance in that idea. Uh, You're seeing that it's impossible for someone to be three things and also one thing at the same time. And that gets us into this idea of our presuppositions about understanding the Trinity. We have one really big presupposition that we need to wrestle with, not just because it helps us understand who the Trinity is and why we believe what we say we believe about him, but it's also important for just reading the scriptures in general. Like when we approach the scriptures, every one of us has presuppositions. Um, My hope is to help you have the right presupposition when you come to the scriptures. Uh, So here's the presupposition and then we'll explain it. The idea is we presuppose that the Bible is true even if it doesn't make sense to us. Okay, so we presuppose the Bible is true, even if it doesn't make sense to us. And I think this is particularly a distinctive quality of uh, the Lutherans. I think this is what makes a Lutheran church unique. And and honestly, I think it is the number one reason that I am still a Lutheran and not part of another denomination of Christianity. Uh, Because Lutherans are vicious in applying this principle, this this presupposition on the scriptures. Uh, So let me see if I can give you an example of how this might work. Um, In the Lord's Supper, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my body and this is my blood. And so what we believe as Lutherans is that that is his body and that is his blood. We also know from 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul tells us that in communion we receive bread and wine. And so what we confess is that even though we can't really understand how that's possible, that the bread is also Jesus' body and the wine is also Jesus' blood and that we receive all four of those things in the Lord's Supper. We just say, well, that's what the Bible says and that's what we're going with. Uh, If you were to go to your local Roman Catholic priest and ask him to explain to you what the Lord's Supper is, what he would do is essentially take Aristotelian philosophy and use it to explain those words. So he would talk to you about the accidents and the essence of items and how the accidents don't change, but the essence does change. And he would explain how the bread actually turns into the body, even though it still looks like bread and the wine turns into the blood, even though it looks and still tastes like wine. And he would have a really good answer for you by logical standards, but he would be using essentially Aristotelian philosophy to explain Jesus, which is kind of backwards. If you would go to your local Reformed church, which is essentially any Protestant who's not Lutheran, they would explain these words by saying, well, there's one of a couple things that's probably true. Either Jesus just meant it representationally, so it was symbolic of his his body and his blood, or they might say that, yes, you receive it in a spiritual way, but it can't physically be his body and blood because it's physically bread and wine, and Jesus is physically at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and therefore you can't actually receive body and blood. And what they're doing is they're making a logical sequence to figure out what they believe about the scriptures. But what the Lutherans will do is just say, yeah, we don't really understand how that works. We just believe it. And I think this is also why Lutherans can be kind of frustrating for people uh, because we, we're willing to say we don't know a lot. We're willing to not have an answer because we never want to say more than what the scriptures say. Um, I think particularly with this issue of the Lord's Supper, uh, The story about Martin Luther is he was arguing for this teaching of the Lord's Supper. 
He said, if the Lord on the last day comes back to me and says, actually, I didn't mean that this was my body and this was my blood actually present in the Lord's Supper. Luther said, what I will say to him is all I wanted to do was to take your words at face value and believe them. And so maybe you can see why I think this is a valuable way of looking at the scriptures to just say, I don't understand exactly how this works, but that's what the Bible says. So it therefore must be true. If there is a lack of understanding of what the scripture is teaching me, the problem is not with the scriptures, it's with me. I'm the sinful person. I'm the corrupt person. I'm the broken person by sin. And therefore God's perfect word should be right and I should be wrong. Now you might think to yourself, okay, but that seems like you're giving carte blanche essentially to the scriptures. You're saying like, no matter what the scriptures say, we're just going to believe it. We're never going to challenge it. We're never going to ask questions of it. We're never going to be critical of it. Um, Yeah, that, that is what I'm saying. But here's the reason why. Jesus. See, Jesus was a man who walked on this earth, who claimed to also be God, and said he's going to prove it to us by doing something only God can do, which is rise from the dead after being killed. And then he did it. And it's a historically verifiable event. All you need to do is trust the science, the historical science. And you'll see that that's actually what happened. And because Jesus did that, Therefore, I believe that he's actually God. And so when he, as God, says the scriptures are true, they are my word, I'm going to believe that. Now, it is a little bit of a leap of faith. You have to believe that you know, all the evidence, the overwhelming amount of evidence that proves that Jesus rose from the dead is true, I suppose. And, and then you also need to know that Jesus said the scriptures are true, but that's how we get to that presupposition. Okay, so now walk this back to the Trinity. When we see God reveal himself as three individual persons who are God and yet at the same time is unified in one God, monotheism essentially, we say, we don't really understand how that works, but we confess it. Now the good news is that while uh, Christian churches are very divided on what the Lord's Supper says, in general, Christian churches are more so unified over what the Bible says about the Trinity. So if you would go to your Roman Catholic church or you would go to your Reformed church, in general, you're going to find that they confess the Trinity just like us. And that's a good thing because it means that Christians can be in those churches and we will see many of them in heaven with us someday. Um, So what we're going to have to do then is apply this presupposition to what the scriptures say. So with that being the presupposition, what I want to show you now are the evidences in the scriptures of the Trinity. So the, the five statements that the Bible makes very clearly for us are that God is one, The Father is God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and that those three individuals are distinct from each other. And so I'm going to show you where in the Bible you can find each of these statements. Um, But these are the five statements that we need to hold all intention at the same time in order to understand the Trinity. Now, as you go through this list, you'll actually find that uh, the the things at the top of the list, especially number one and number two, those are pretty universally accepted by Christian churches. You're not going to find many churches who will say that the Father is not God or that God is not one, although there are some out there. Uh, But as you start to get farther down the list, that's where you're going to find a little bit more discrepancy between church bodies. Um, You're going to find more and more who will say, you know, Jesus Christ is not God or the Holy Spirit is not God, or particularly that the three persons of the Trinity are distinct from each other. So with that all as the background, let's walk through the evidence. First, the Bible says that God is one. Um, I'm going to put 
a verse on here that I think is the best verse in the Bible for proving this idea. But then I'm also going to, to leave a couple verses on the slide below. And the idea is so that, you know, if you're ever thinking about like, who is the Trinity? How do I understand the Trinity? You can always come back to this sermon and watch it. It'd be like a resource for you, sort of. Um, so the, the best verse to go to for this is Deuteronomy 6, 4. Uh, that's the, the Hebrew Shema. The Shema was uh, essentially the Old Testament creed for God's people. So similar to the way we say a creed in worship, they would say this creed in their worship. Uh, it went Shema Israel Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad, which meant the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what the, the verse is. And in that we see that God is one. He is a single God. And this would have been a radical idea uh, at that time. Pretty much every uh, worldview that was present when, when, um, when we have the writings of the Old Testament was a multiplicity of gods, a pantheon of gods, if you will. And so the Israelites actually stood very unique from the rest of the culture by saying that they had a God who is one. And that actually is still pretty unique today. I mean, Basically, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are the only religions that have the idea of a a monotheism, like a one God. So it's already a radical idea. But we also know that the Father then is God, which is where we're going to start getting a little bit more unique. Uh, The best verse for this is 2 Corinthians 1.3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. So again, this is not too contested, but the Bible is pretty clear that the Father is God. Then we know that the Son, Jesus Christ, is God. I think the best verse for this is Romans 9, 5, where it says, From the patriarchs of Israel is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So the text is clear. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is God. He is God over all. Um, also in this verse, we can see that he is completely human. If you remember in the Athanasian Creed, there's quite a bit of, of that creed that says that Jesus is both human and God at the same time, which is really important for us because God needs to be human in order to die for our sins, but he needs to be God in order to have a life that is worth all of our lives so he can be the savior of all of us. So you have the Father is God, the Son, Jesus Christ is God, the Holy Spirit is also God. Now, the best place to go for this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. So I won't read you the whole story, but the the basic thing that happens here is um, Ananias and Sapphira give an offering to their church, but they lie about how much they're giving. Um, And so what uh, Peter, Peter does, he confronts them and he says this. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And so you see in there, Peter is making um, sort of a, a, if you want to like say an algebraic equation, like on the one side, you lied to the Holy Spirit and you lied to God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must be God. And that's really important because the Holy Spirit is the one who we say in the Nicene Creed is the giver of life. So the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us into the family of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who is active in baptism to bring you into the family of God. He's active through the word of God to bring you into the family of God. And he is the one who continues to strengthen your faith. And the reason this all matters is because your salvation needs to be completely by grace alone, by God's power. 
So God not only creates you, but then he also redeems you by his power and he brings you into that redemption by his power. So it can completely depend on him and not depend on you at all. Because quite frankly, if it depended on me or it depended on you, we would mess it up. And so it's really important for us to know that the Holy Spirit is God. And so you have these three distinct persons of the Trinity, right? Which the Bible says to us, they are, they're not just one, but they are also three at the same time. And the best passage for this is Mark chapter one, verse 10 and 11, which is what we read earlier in the service. Um, It lays out for us all three persons of the Trinity who we all know are God all separately, all at the same time in the same place. So you have Jesus being baptized. He's in the water, the second person of the Trinity, the son. And you have the Holy Spirit, the third person, descending on him like a dove. And you have the first person, the father speaking from heaven. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And so we see the teaching. God is Trinity. He is three individual persons who are distinct from each other. And they are all God at the same time. But I have to stop here and then say, okay, so why does that matter? You know, I was, um, I was watching a webinar this week about Gen Z. So they're, they're the generation is basically 24 years old and younger. And it was talking about how they react to evangelism. And one of the findings that a huge study that's just been done by the Barna Group in Canada on Canadian Gen Zers, um, what, one of their findings was that when it comes to Christianity, Gen Z is less concerned with propositional statements and more concerned with, do the ideas of Christianity actually benefit people? Now, if you're 24 years old or younger, maybe you can tell me if that's true or not. I'd love to hear your perspective on this. But that means that basically, if you're 24 years old or younger, everything I just said was really boring to you. (laughs) The propositional statements of like, how do we know that Jesus is God? And how do we know that you know, the son, the, the father is God? And how do we know that the Holy Spirit is God and that they're distinct and that they're one? Like all of that, you're like, okay, that's fine. But what I care about is whether it actually makes people's lives better. And so I want to spend the balance of our time explaining to you why like the Trinity is necessary, not just for salvation in a spiritual sense and in a Christianity sense, but it is actually the best thing for our society moving forward. And so I want to give you three applications, three practical ways um, that the Trinity can be used and that you can understand it to be necessary for your life. Uh, The first of those is that it is practical for depolarization. So you know what this idea is, polarization, that our society is is essentially moving apart. That on the one side, you have people who hold certain values. On the other side, you have people who hold certain values. And they're getting farther and farther away from each other. The Trinity is intensely practical for this. Because the Trinity is unity in diversity. Is unity in diversity. So on the one side of, you would maybe say, the ideological spectrum, you have people who love diversity. They're like, everybody should be able to do their their own thing. They should be their own person. They should value their own stuff. They can be whoever they want to be, identify as whatever they want to identify as. That's diversity. And they'll say things like diversity is our strength. And they'll, they'll advocate for groups who maybe are oppressed or maybe have less advantages or whatever based on class or race or gender or any of these sorts of things. That's the nature of God. Our God is diverse. And he is three individual distinct persons with different roles. 
He does different things because he is different persons within his Trinity. On the other side of this, you'll have people on the other ideological end of the spectrum who will say what we need is more unity. Yeah, it's fine if people are a little bit different, but what we need more is for everyone to unify, for everyone to fall under the rules, to stay in line, to fit into society. They'll say things like you can't have a society if everyone's off doing their own thing. A society is people coming together and valuing the same things, moving together. That's the nature of God. Right? Like our God is unified. He's not three distinct persons alone as if he were three gods, but he is one God. He is unified. All three persons work together to be that trinity in unity. What both these sides get wrong is that they value only one side of this unity and diversity, and they usually try to accomplish it by coercion. So uh, we have done this thing in our society. Where we talk, we've taken the word love and we've sort of like pushed into it, almost like a puppet, the idea of worship. So what very often happens on the one side of the political spectrum is they'll say, you know, we're all about love, but they're not actually all about love. What they're all about is worship. Let me explain this idea to you. So when a person says, I am this way, whatever the characteristic is, and you ought to accept it, you need to accept me. You need to give me resources. You need to treat me equally with everybody else. What you're essentially saying is worship me, right? Because you're not actually asking them to love you. You're, you're forcing them to love you, at least by your definition. And that's worship. God does the same thing with us. He says, I'm greater than you. Therefore, you should worship me just because of who I am. We call it love because we want it to seem nice and soft, but it's actually worship. And that's not who God is. See, God is diversity, but he is diversity by sacrifice. So he, he is three persons who are ultimately working for each other. Right? The father gives glory to the son so that the son can give glory to the father. The father can give power to the son and the son can submit to the father. And the father and the son can send the Holy Spirit out who by his power brings people into that reality. They're all working together. They're not trying to accomplish their own thing. They're all sacrificing and working for each other. That's the nature of God. On the other side, what generally happens is again, coercion. People say we need unity, but the way that we're going to do it is we're going to hold people accountable to the laws or we're going to force them to do these things that fit in with society. We're going to tell people you can't act that way. You can't be that type of person. That's not the nature of God. The nature of God is unity because of self-sacrifice. The way the Bible describes God and his Trinity is constantly glorifying each other. So the son is always looking at the father and the spirit and saying, how can I serve and glorify and adore the other persons of the Trinity? How can I sacrifice of myself for the sake of them? And vice versa with the other persons of the Trinity. And that's what actually causes unity very rarely happens on this side of the ideological spectrum where people are actually are forcing people to think their way rather than sacrificing for them in order to move them in their direction. So the Trinity is intensely practical for depolarization because God in his very nature is Trinity in unity. And while we tend to be on one or the other side of the ideological spectrum, God is in the middle. And actually, we should move towards being more like God, valuing diversity and also valuing unity and using true self-sacrificial love to make that happen. Second practical application. 
The Trinity is practical for genuine love. Now, I already kind of spoiled a little bit with that idea of worship. Um, but what you have to understand is that God in his Trinity is essentially love. So if you look at the other ways that people have conceived of God historically, um, you either have people who think of God as radical monotheism. So that's your Judaism, Islam. They think God is one and that is it. Or on the other side, you'll have essentially a pantheon, right? A multiplicity of gods. Think like Greco-Roman gods like Zeus and Hermes and Hera and those sorts of people. Uh, Both of those are insufficient for the main purpose of life being genuine love. Let me explain this to you. On the one hand, you have the radical monotheism. that God is one. If that is true, then God cannot be essentially love. Because in order for love to happen, in order for true self-sacrifice to happen, there has to be another, another thing, another person. And so before creation, if God is only one, then he can't be love. In fact, the very reason that he would create the world cannot be because of love. It has to be because of power. Right? He creates something in order to get something out of it or to control it because he himself cannot be love. On the other side, if you have a pantheon of gods, you cannot have genuine love. Um, In fact, if you look at some of the ancient uh, mythologies about how the world came into existence, they'll say things like, you know, this God and this God were in conflict and they had a battle and then something exploded and the result was the world. Which means like the whole purpose of the world is conflict. It's the result of conflict. It's, It's essential being, its foundation is conflict. So what kind of world do you want to live in? You want to live in a world that is based on conflict or a world that's based on coercive submission? Or do you want to live in a world created by a God who already was love in and of himself because he had others to love and he was not in conflict with those others. In fact, he was in perfect concert, glorifying, adoring, and praising each other. Well, that's the Trinity. I mentioned this in the kids' message. Children are the product of parents' love for each other, right? In the same way, we are products of God's love for himself in his Trinity. God, because he loved himself in Trinity, wanted to produce more things in order to love them. And so if you believe that a fundamental principle of the world is genuine love, you need to believe in the Trinity. It is the only way that this actually works. Let me give you one more practical application. Uh, Meaningful relationships. So the beauty of the Trinity is that it completely flips the narrative about how God and you get in touch with one another. In every other worldview, every other religion, you have to get up to God. God is up here. Or if you want to use a non-religious worldview, like the elites or the influencers or whoever you listen to, they're up here. And they say, if you can do X, Y, and Z, then you can get up to us and we'll have a relationship with you once you get up to us. If you do the right things, say the right things, follow the right rules, whatever, then you're one of us. In Christianity, because God is meaningful, genuine love, and because he is Trinity, he actually steps out into your world in the person of Jesus Christ. So God can still be God above all things and also meaningfully in your life. See if I can show you how this works. So when I was a child, I I thought like, why didn't God just send Jesus and then like, let him get killed by Herod, you know, who tried to kill all the baby boys in Israel when they found, when he found out Jesus was born, like you could have just, you know, the son of God dies for the sins of the world and we're all done. It only took us two years. Why does God let Jesus live 33 years on this earth? Because he wants meaningful relationships with you. 
Like he wanted to actually know and be known by human beings. God in his essence wants meaningful relationships with you and wants meaningful relationships among his people. Our world is getting more and more disconnected, especially because of the internet. Even though we can see our, see our faces through pixels on a screen, the idea of actually being physically with other people for an extended period of time to make quality time to grow meaningful relationships, that is falling apart, especially for those of you who are 24 years old or younger. If all the statistics are true, then you Gen Zers, you have fewer meaningful relationships than my generation does, especially the generations older than us. Maybe that's not true for you, but that's what the statistics say. And yet Christianity says, like the essence of who our God is, is a meaningful relationship. And that if Christianity is being practiced correctly, Christians will be in meaningful relationships with each other. I'm guessing many of you who are 24 years of of age or younger crave that. You would love to have Christian friends, even if they weren't your generation, who would just care about you enough to have coffee with you once a month or once a week. Or to have you over to their house for dinner every so often. Like to actually have those meaningful relationships. Christianity offers that because it has genuine love and because it values unity and diversity. So the Trinity is essential for human flourishing. Like if we are going to build a better world, it is going to be from the foundation of who God reveals himself to be. But then let me give you one more practical application. And this is not so much for those of you who are less than 24 years old. That's for those of you who are more than 24 years old. What that webinar about Gen Z said was that Gen Z values not just people who are teaching the truth, but people who are living the truth. And for those of us who are older than 24 years old, I I wonder if we have something we can learn from that. That that it's not enough for us just to know who God is, but that that knowledge ought to lead us to live a different way. That it ought to lead us to live in a way that depolarizes society that isn't ranting about the other side of the ideological spectrum. It should lead us to genuine love. Like not sacrifice when it's easy or convenient, but self-sacrifice when, when it isn't easy and convenient. Because we know that everything we need, we already have in Christ. And it should lead us to meaningful relationships. Not just saying it's nice to see you on Sunday or see you maybe if we cross paths somewhere during our week, but to like intentionalize being in each other's lives weekly. That's why we have life groups, right? We, We want to make those relationships strong because that's how God is. And I wonder if those of us who are older than 24, we need to hear that because that's this younger generation is teaching us something about who God is. They have their troubles. They have their issues, just like all of us. We're all sinful. We're all relying on the grace of God. But I wonder if they see something in God that we don't see very well. I pray that we can understand who God is in his Trinity and that it can actually motivate us to live ever more like him, reflecting his image as his image bearers. Because that's who God made us to be. And when we messed it up by our sin, that's who God redeemed us to be. And that who that is who God is continually growing us to be like by his Holy Spirit so that on the last day, we can once again realize the full image of God in ourselves 
because we will live in that perfect relationship that God and his Trinity originally built for us. This is a difficult teaching, but we're thankful that God has revealed it to us in the way that he has so that we can live by faith and also live bearing God's image. God be praised. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for showing yourself to us so that we can know you and be saved. Jesus, when you were on earth, you said, this is true life, eternal life, that we would know the Father. And other places in the scriptures tell us that when we see you, Jesus, we see the Father. We know that that happens only by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would continue to come to us in word and in sacrament for the strengthening of our faith so that we can ever more bear your image until it is perfected in us in the resurrection. We ask it all in your name. Amen.